Welcome back to the Work Bold Podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions, space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, fund manager, developer, property manager, agent, or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and this is episode two of season six, sponsored by TSK, which, by the way, just published a piece of content breaking down the difference between agile, flexible, and hybrid working. Be sure to check out the link in the show notes so you aren't using the wrong words. Now, this episode continues my Canadian tour, another face-to-face interview in Toronto, Canada, which means I have to give a big thank you to 111 for hosting us in their podcast studio. Thank you, Matthew Lombardi and team. And also, thank you to Michael Krabschick with LumiQ for swooping in last minute with the brilliant audio equipment. In this episode, I'm joined by John Ruffalo, Canada's leading venture capitalist, to talk about what fast-growing companies need from office real estate. And he knows a thing or two about this topic, considering that where we recorded this episode, 111, is his brainchild created a few years ago for post-seed tech companies. You might remember my shout-out in episode one last week to this 55,000-square-foot community that helps fast-growing companies attract and retain talent. John tells us what these high-growth companies need from office real estate and how office assets can support companies throughout their entire life cycle. We go into a lot more that I'll save for this episode, but what I will say is this. A couple years ago, retailers shifted to using physical spaces to complement e-commerce. I think we're going to see companies shift to use offices to complement remote work. That thought was inspired by a brilliant conversation Bruce Daisley had on his podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat with Richard Pickering from Cushman and Wakefield. We've included a link in the show notes below for you to have a listen. As always, if you have any questions or feedback or topics you want covered, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Caleb underscore Parker or DM me on LinkedIn. We could spend all day talking about how great TSK is, but how about you hear it from the people that actually work in their spaces? As if you needed more convincing, here's some more case studies from TSK. thing I'm genuinely thinking I'm most excited about is that we've got a space that doesn't feel like a call center. It doesn't feel like an office. It feels like a space I can come in and be creative if I want. I can work silently if I want. I can genuinely work however suits me. We can be really proud of this space and it's gonna have a great impact on attracting the best talent to to the company, which is ultimately one of the things we need to do as as an organization to be successful. Now, I have to thank Dave Cairns for introducing me to John to make this episode possible, but I've also asked him to introduce you to John because their story is so fitting. I think you'll appreciate this segue to the episode. And now for something completely different. I'm Dave Cairns, and surprise, surprise, I'm back, baby. But don't worry, this time I'm only here to introduce a friend of mine. His name is John Ruffalo, and he's not an ordinary person by any stretch of the imagination. John has proven himself as one of, if not the most creative and resilient VC private equity investors that is alive on this planet, certainly at least in the Canadian context. Speaking of resiliency, John was hit by a transport truck while road biking at the beginning of the pandemic. It was touch and go for John for a while, but he bounced back in a way that only a superhero could. And that's what John is. He's a superhero. They come in many forms. On top of being a prolific investor, John has a unique tie to the office sector, Caleb's going to dive into all this further throughout the episode, but let me wet your beak a little bit. John founded a community called 111 for post-seed Canadian scale-ups. As part of leveling up this community, John wanted to make sure they had the right real estate available to them to match their actual needs. As is self-evident now to the masses, but wasn't at the time, this meant flexibility, service, programming, mentorship, 
and the outsourcing of business activities that distract companies from skating where the puck is headed. John was kind enough to get me involved with not only his thinking with 111, but also fundamentally changed my view of where the office market needs to go. I've been on a journey of self-exploration ever since, and I'm grateful to have been joined by many of you over on LinkedIn, and I all of this thinking to John. I'm going to leave you with a quote by John before handing the mic back over to Caleb. I was warning the telecoms, you better control the service layer, the value added layer on top, or you will be disintermediated and all you will be is a big fat dumb pipe. Now let's use this analogy for commercial real estate. If all you are doing is putting the bricks up into the sky, you will be a big dumb fat building earning an appropriate infrastructure level return. Wise words by John. And now I'm going to say the part that I never thought I'd be able to. Jeff, let's kick it, brother. Welcome back to the Work Bold Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and today I'm joined by John Ruffalo. John is the founder and managing partner of Mavericks Private Equity. John's focus is on guiding the strategy of the firm, chair of the investment committee, and is deeply involved with sourcing and leading opportunities, particularly within the technology industry. John is also the founder of Omer's Ventures. Through John's leadership as CEO, Omer's Ventures had invested $500 million of capital in over 40 disruptive technology companies across North America, including growth investments in Shopify, Wattpad, Wave, Hootsuite, Rover, Desire to Learn, Hopper. He's led investments in Purpose Financial, Point North Capital, District Ventures, Xanadu, 111, which we're sitting in today, and Art Turned Ventures. He's also the co-founder and vice chair of the Council of Canadian Innovators, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping high-growth Canadian technology firms scale up globally. Further, John sits on a number of boards of leading innovative organizations organizations in both the profit and nonprofit sector. A quick fun fact, John and his wife named each of their children after their favorite bottle of wine. Is that red or white? It has to be red. <laughs> <laughs> I concur. Welcome to the Workable Podcast, John. All right. Thank you, Caleb. Really excited that you're here. We've been connected on LinkedIn now for some time. I have to give a big thank you to Dave Kearns, our mutual friend, for introducing us. And I sort of want to say that like this whole day would not be possible without Dave, but even more important, without this inflection point that we've been in throughout this pandemic, we've all sort of leaned into connecting virtually. And if it wasn't for LinkedIn and this podcast, I wouldn't have met Dave and I wouldn't have been here today in person to, to sit down with you. So it's, it just had to give Dave a massive shout out. This podcast is focused on space as a service and commercial real estate. And we're going to get to those topics in just a moment, but I want to set the stage first. So we're sitting in 111 right now. This is the house that you built. You built it for fast-growing technology companies, what, a couple years ago now? Well, really 10 years 10 ago. 10 years ago. Yes. But it was rejuvenated a couple of years ago when, when COVID had hit. Okay. Speaking of COVID, today we're in a different world. Uh, we've obviously had a pandemic in the past couple of years. You've had a significant life change. Yes. And this is the first time you've been back in this space since then. I just, I want to make that statement to set the stage because I think it's a profound perspective as we start talking through these questions in this conversation today. Okay. So as an entrepreneur myself, I love that your private equity firm is called Mavericks. Mavericks is named after the people you're investing in. Correct. The nonconformists, the disruptors. Yes. We created the bold brand for the people that we support, the entrepreneurs, the people who challenge the status quo, who are bold enough to go out and change the world. So I believe the entrepreneurs are the ones who make the world a better place by solving problems of the time and making life easier for all of us. And throughout history, if we look back at the major innovations that's moved the world forward, it's been during times of crisis. This pandemic's no different. I'm going to quote your colleague, Mohit. The pandemic forced many companies to change and pivot 
from their core business to survive. We've seen restaurants transform from dining only to solely focus on takeout and deliveries. We've seen brick and mortar retailers shift from curbside pickup and e-commerce. We've seen the delivery of healthcare go virtual. Companies that adapted to the changing external environment and accelerated their transformations, mitigated the impact of the pandemic, or created new business models. Mavericks has just closed your first $500 million growth private equity fund, focused on technology-enabled growth and disruption. So my question for you, John, is what areas do you see the big Biggest innovations happening as we emerge from this pandemic. Thank you, uh, Caleb. You know, I, I would say, first of all, every industry is under attack. And, and I would also say that the pandemic really hasn't changed anything in many respects. It accelerated what was already pre-existing and perhaps lots of entrepreneurs had their heads buried in the sand in terms of where technological innovation was going. And so you just gave a number of examples of industries in particular that were hit the hardest because their business model was so connected to the physicality of their real estate. And so you mentioned hospitality, the real estate industry, the retail industry. To suggest that they didn't know that this was coming, you know, is quite naive. And in fact, the firm Mavericks, the genesis of it was really a noodle in my head starting around 2015. And what was magical about that? I built Omer's Ventures earlier in 2011 and its sole focus was to focus in on investing in technology companies as traditionally defined. Let's ignore the B2C space for the moment, but classic technologies are building the tool sets, software, hardware, semiconductor that get embedded or be, are sold to the rest of the industries in order to make those industries more productive. It was a spectacular time to be investing because we were still relatively early in this web 3.0 technology cycle of creative destruction. Starting about 2015-ish, the technology curve started to flatten, but what I saw was the crossing of the chasm to the traditional industries in terms of them truly leveraging those technologies. And in Canada, the first grouping of industries was largely the financial services sector. And it was mostly the, the Canadian large banks. And they started to realize, uh-oh, this AI is real, as an example, or this blockchain is real. And all of a sudden, they started experimenting. And I started to see each one of the industries starting to finally topple after years of not believing that technology might disrupt their business. Run the clock five years from now, it was the pandemic. And what the pandemic did is that a logical cycle that would have taken five, seven years took five or seven weeks in some cases, because it really is adopt and embed those technologies or you shall die. That is the point. And so the companies that you're investing in, the entrepreneurs that you're investing in, they're not limited to the financial services industry. You said they're across all industries. They're across all industries. So there's five core industries that we particularly like, just largely due to both the opportunity, but also there are industries where the adoption of technologies is actually the hardest. So financial services, healthcare are two big areas, transportation and logistics 
huge area. These are industries that were largely very traditional. The real estate industry, you know, when I say real estate, I'm saying in the broadest sense, think of smart city, you know, think about, you know, how traditional real estate, particularly during the pandemic, probably has the most visibility of an industry that's in need of massive change. And you're seeing that play out on a daily basis as an example. So you talk about real estate. I'm curious to know with these companies that you are investing in, uh, these high growth companies, as they scale coming out of the pandemic, considering we're in a different world today, Mm -hmm. what do these fast growing companies need from office real estate? Yeah. So, so let's just use office real estate because I think the analysis is different from industrial real estate, which is different from residential. So let's just talk about commercial for the moment. The problem has been a very long problem for a long time. And it's as basic as the real estate industry was really never serving the needs of its ultimate users at the end of the day. And bizarrely to me, and I always questioned it, it was one of the last industries, in fact, one of maybe the last industry that was supply side focused as opposed to demand side. So the rest of the world moved to demand. So let's use Uber. Before the supply side was the supply of taxis, you waited around horrible experience, right? And it flipped it on its head where the customer was in control. And you can go through countless industries that happened. Real estate stayed the same. It was largely organizations that had a capital advantage so they they can build the product. Yes, they've done pre-advanced marketing work and pre-selling work, but let's just ignore that for the moment. But it's, we will build it and they shall come. And whether they like it or not, because everyone else was largely the same. So somebody would say, well, I have all of these needs and it would be matched against the supply side, but the supply has already been pre-built. Now that's number one. Number two, which I always found odd was the real estate industry didn't look to their customer as a customer. They looked at it as a tenant in that particular building based on a geographic location. So let me give you an example. If a company came to you that has 500 employees in six cities and they said, we need space for them. There was really no analysis by any real estate provider say, okay, let me understand where your employees are. Where do they live? How do they work? Which ones really need to be in the office? Which ones need community space? Which one doesn't make any sense for? And we will map out for you how your flow of human capital should look like. Some space might be permanent, some might be flex, and some might be at home. And then helping the companies to figure that out and giving the employees their best user experience based on that. It was not done. And who's doing that right now? It's largely the startups who are sitting on top of the infrastructure of the real estate, and they don't care where the real estate is and who owns the real estate. Because the one thing that I kept on saying is if you are a big real estate owner and why wouldn't you help that company figure out the other two cities? Why does it need to be in your particular building, even if it didn't make sense? So it's really trying to shoehorn a client opportunity to fit your buildings. And really what I was observing, why don't you 
flipping it on its head where the real estate owner is both in essence a broker of user needs and happens to own a bunch of real estate as well. I love that. I think how we're seeing that being solved for today for the customer is through these marketplaces like a liquid space or here in Canada, Flex Day, and you've got Dasana over in the UK, Hubly over in Ireland. So there's these platforms that, as you say, are building on top of the infrastructure. But you have a really good analogy with the telecoms industry for that. Yes. I'd love you to talk about that. Yes. I think real estate folks hate it when <laughs> I mention it, but it's playing out exactly. And it's funny. You know, history just constantly repeats itself. So I use the telecom sector and I was a deep telecom expert for many years, uh, going back over 20 years. And you saw the same thing happen is that in the web.1.0 world, right? So we're, we're going back to the mid 1990s. Where did all of the value accrete to? It was the builders of the internet. So companies like Nortel Networks and Alcatel, et cetera, who are actually putting in the pipe. So they created the first round of all of the value. And in Canada, you know, as an example, it was crazy. All the highest valuations went to that physical building. And then once it was built, we transformed into, well, how do you get on that highway, right? And then it was the ISPs or the internet service providers that started to accrete the wealth. Well, who took that over was the telecom company. So the telecom company stepped in and basically said, okay, we're going to charge you the toll road. And they were extremely happy because more and more users were coming on. So they focused in on on you no know, mobile subscribers, etc. But what was starting to happen was yes, that was meeting a customer's needs, sort of, although they were screwing the customers for the most part, charging exorbitant fees. But all these other companies came about and were born and started to extract value on top of that highway. Think Google, Amazon, Facebook, you name it, Netflix. They would not be around if it wasn't for that building. But what they did is that there was massive unit economics that they extracted other than the infrastructure return on the building of that highway. And I kept on saying to a lot of the telecoms, folks, you better add service layers on top of that because someone's going to come up top of you and extract that for you and they will be closest to your customer and ultimately you're going to be providing infrastructure value to those service providers is this sounding very familiar to what's going on in the real estate sector the parallel is strikingly similar and i already think that many of them are already at serious risk of giving up all of those economics on the service layer 100%. I think it's a great analogy. I think it's exactly the same. And when you look at the value chain as a sort of a small graph, you've got the bottom part of that graph is commodity, that's the infrastructure, but all of the customer experience layers on top of that is where all the value is. Caleb, let me ask you a question. <laughs> Some people push back on me and I love the pushback. You are a deep expert in real estate. What was the last time that somebody was looking for space asked who the building owner was? I think that's the question that I've asked on this podcast a million times before, and it hardly ever happens. Nobody ever asks. I don't even half the time I'm in the building and I forget. And the only reason why I remember when I go into the elevator bank, 
and there's a, a plate. Oh yeah, right. I'm in this building owner. And then I don't care because there's no experience for me that I feel and see. That's a funny quandary that you see where at least in the telecom side using Canada, at least people know whether you are a Rogers or a Bell, but on a building side, not even that. Yeah, this is some, it's a fundamental issue I find with real, commercial real estate that the brand has never been a thing because the customer has always been the investor, the money, capital markets, not the end user. But as we're moving into this new way of working, the customer has to become the end user, the, the human that walks in and out of the building every day. And in order to build loyalty and trust with that person, you have to deliver an, a consistent experience. And that consistent experience is what becomes known as the brand. So I think if we all do our jobs right over the next 10 years, everyone will know what building, who owns the building they're in. Correct. Uh, or who's managing the building at least. Right. So the building owner needs to make a decision and needs to make a decision today. Is their relationship going to be a B2B relationship with the company or is it going to be a B2B2C relationship ultimately with the end consumer? And it's a, it's a strategic decision that they better make now, and, and it's not to suggest that one is better than the other, but they do lead to very, very different results. Well, I think this has been great. I want to move to the next question, which I think leads on from this. And okay. it's, it's sort of going back to these fast growing companies for a moment. Over the lifetime of a company, you start out as just a startup and you, you get some traction and you get investment and you grow and you hire people and then you become established and you're making lots of money mm -hmm. throughout that period. And maybe some don't get that far, but the space needs change. And I think the space needs have changed in general for everybody throughout this pandemic, but the space needs change. So if we go back to that six city example, when a company's reached that level, that's probably a couple years into their life cycle. Mm -hmm. That landlord who has four buildings or buildings in four of those cities, they're not getting that company on day one because that company can't afford the prices, the cash requirements. They don't have the credit. So how in your mind can commercial real estate support companies throughout the life cycle and why would they want to? Doug, that great question. So to oversimplify it, there's A, B, and C spaces. And in the life of a startup, and, and I would segregate in very simple terms, and let's use a technology startup. They go through three phases of development. And I'm going to use revenues as a proxy, going from zero to $10 million, going from 10 to 100 million and 100 million to a billion plus. And each of those stages, there's fundamental differences of what's going on. But in that zero to $10 million space, cash is extremely tight and community is what's most important. As I walk around 111 today, they're at maximum legal capacity today. We're in the pandemic and they're all here. And I just walked through and asked a few questions and they can't think of anywhere else to be. And yet when you read newspapers, you'd think that nobody is occupying buildings. They forgot one key element. You use the term space as a service. I actually don't use that term. I actually use community as a service. So when I originally thought of the idea of 111, it really was the community and how people learn and how they work, which is more powerful than the actual physicality of the space itself. Hence why we're at capacity here at 111. And so in that zero to $10 million, that community is very important. 
but also having resources at their disposal where they don't have to have an IT shop or, you know, folks running around doing concierge level of activities, they will pay for it if somebody else does it and achieve some economies of scale so that in that zero to 10 million, you're only doing one thing. You're building product and you're seeking product market fit. Why hire anyone else? Why hire a bookkeeper, for example? Why doesn't the space provide it? You know, every non-essential service can be provided, again, if you could bundle it together and share costs somehow. And so when you do something like that, the type of space needs is probably a C type space because the cost point is very, very low. Well, some high-end brands might say, well, we only invest in A. But disruption always comes from the bottom, never from the top down. And so creating flanker brands to serve as your pipeline of opportunities on the rising stars. You know, you should have your A, B, and C. You may not own them all, perhaps, but you may want to make them available as companies rise through it. And the one thing that was quite interesting in that pandemic for startups, we've never seen as many startups going from zero to 10 and hitting a hundred in late in under 24 months. That was unheard of only a few years ago. And so all of a sudden the premium uh, real estate companies are looking for those hundred million going to a billion. Well, guess what? You better get their loyalty in that B and C space first, because they're going to look at you and say, again, what value are you adding when I'm now seeking a space? So having that life cycle approach as well works for many industries. And I'd say works for real estate just as equally as well. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there and the space as a service, we call it the five pillars of space as a service. Community is one of the pillars, one of the significant pillars, hospitality, delivering yep. the service layer, creating a fr friction-free environment through technology, obviously the space itself and the various components of that. And then managing and optimizing that space, making sure that you're curating that community, you're managing a efficient space for and programming in content that's going to deliver value to, to your members. As if you needed more convincing, here's some more case studies from TSK. We've had to inject identities into each floor to enable the teams to navigate their way around the space and just to feel more human-sized within it. We've got eight floors here of unique office space. Each floor is designed with its own kind of function and personality. We agreed that each floor should have a separate function, starting with forum, meetings, presentation, focus, lounge, and then finally social. The design for each of these spaces started with a simple idea of thought and function and where that identity could grow. And we used the influence of how those spaces were designed to translate as a language for the rest of the floor space. It gives that identity on each floor, which the staff love. You know, they get the benefit of being able to work in all these different environments, different settings, and it creates that sense of collaboration and that sense of feeling for everybody on that floor plate to come together as a team. We found a really nice way to be able to bring the building and the aesthetics of the building and the brands together in a way that possibly complements each other. We've really managed to find the sweet spot in every individual space uh, that truly makes it feel like a global home in a really local way. Yeah, okay, but let, let's take this a little bit even further. And again, this is me just pondering. When I look at a building in downtown Toronto, I see a gorgeous building and I ask the first question, how many photocopy and printing rooms are there in that building? How many cafeterias? How many gyms? 
it goes on and on. And yet everybody's building out services that are not core to their business. And yet, why isn't it being shared? Yeah. And yet on the, see, this is where I say on the residential side, it's fascinating. I remember going into uh, New York and seeing Hudson Yards that went into one of their luxury buildings. And it, it was fascinating to watch that some of these apartments were actually rather large but their living rooms and kitchen areas were purposely small. And I kind of looked at that, I go, what's going on? He goes, oh, look at these floors. And you see the most incredible gyms and common space, et cetera. And, and it was a very intentional move to create more high-end common space that can be shared. Now, again, there's pandemic issues, so I'm wondering how that fared. But it was a fascinating concept to not replicate stuff that was being done on every single uh, individual apartment. Well, let's take this to a corporate level. Again, let's just ignore the pandemic just for the moment. Why isn't it that done? And it just kind of makes you wonder the bricks and mortar. Could we take away, in essence, the bricks and mortar and view a building as a service offering to a whole host of companies with a whole host of employees? And it just helps you kind of spin a different lens on what might be missing. I'm glad you said that because the topic of amenities and the service layers have come up quite a bit recently. And before I was coming over here, I had a chat with my friend Basil DeMarudas, who's the managing partner for Four Partnership. They're a real estate developer across Europe. Mm -hmm. I said, do you have any questions that you'd want to ask these customers of office real estate? And he said, yes. In regards to the amenities, we as developers, we want to give you what you want, but it comes at a cost. And are these companies willing to pay additional for this extra value that they're getting, whether that be additional rent or through a service charge or what, or, or on demand. What's your view on that? Well, I tested that very thesis when we were building 111. And when we launched 111, I had a hypothesis of what services that the startups would ask for. And I was almost, I think it was exactly a hundred percent wrong. Yeah. And on the companies that zeroed to $10 million, all they wanted was a, was a plug and play infrastructure service layer. So they didn't want to worry about IT needs, you know, basic things that I actually took for granted. And we quickly flipped the model. And actually, what we were thinking more along was, you know, mentoring, advisory, and all that sort of stuff. Well, they basically said, with all due respect, folks, you don't just, you know, you walking into our business and, and saying hello once every quarter, you think you're going to really help us. But there's a whole bunch of other CEOs that are running these businesses that we're mentoring each other. One of the things they asked for was we want, but we don't know each other. Can you provide forums where we can actually get together and moderate it? It was like, oh my God. Cur yes. Curating community. It, what we didn't know. Yeah. And it, it just never thought. So we got almost everything wrong, repivoted it. And so I think, again, asking the user, what is it that you want? So let, let me go back to the service, the, the basic service layer. If you go into a building, what's the first thing you worry about? We just went into a building temporarily. Now, first thing was our infrastructure in terms of getting access to the internet. Simple as that. Oh my God, it was unbelievably painful. And I would say the single best building in the city of Toronto. And it was the most painful experience. And then we had to get an internet service, a, you know, security services and all that sort of stuff. Well, who are you going to pick? We didn't know, you know, what's the highest curation of quality folks. 
We also found out that there was a mismatch for some bizarre reason on actually the equipment that we had and the expertise of the, the servicing firm. The amount of time that was spent on something that was it's very, very important but none of us were really truly experts on was ridiculous. Well, if you're the building owner, you don't need to be in the cabling or whatever business, but having that in a concierge approach that once we went in there and you said, here, check all the boxes. If you're doing this on behalf of a lot of folks, their scale in pricing sure. and all that sort of stuff. And if you can pass on part of those costs, then it will be even cheaper than, than we might even get on our own. But forget about the cheaper part, even for paying the exact same thing, knowing that we're not wasting any time internally on it is absolutely huge. And I, again, there's, you know, that's a very simple example, but as we're getting more of our employees onto the premises, these issues are starting to compound for us and are starting to take disproportionate amount of time than we really should be affording. And so if a landlord would create this concierge service to, to bring in at minimum the, the data and, and the other backbone infrastructure to provide that for you more plug and play or make it a lot easier for you, you, you would pay extra for that. Yeah, I would. There's a price point, but here's what I would say. It's going to happen. It's happening anyway. So if you're the building owner and right now your return is really based on the infrastructure, the bricks and mortars, you're just getting a, a return it's, and it's typically a single digit return on average. Why wouldn't you want to get a piece of the action of all of the service layer that's escaping? You don't need a hundred percent of that profit that's escaping, but getting some portion of that. When you look again, and let's use Netflix as an example, and this was a very well-known example. Netflix was using, I want to say it was AT&T in the United States, and Netflix was building this monstrous business, and AT&T was watching Netflix scoop up all of this value, value that AT&T could have easily have done. And now they started building up their content business because they kind of realized, well, maybe there was an opportunity in there. And then what have they started to do? They started to throttle it mm -hmm. and basically say, hey, Netflix, your users are chewing up massive bandwidth, which is screwing up everyone else. We want to charge you disproportionate pricing if you still want to get this the the right speeds and this became the whole net neutrality debate but the point there is they started to see the economic leakage in what it was doing again use this analogy on the the owners of the real estate infrastructure i see the exact same thing happening so i could see a lot of the building owners if they don't want to get into those service level businesses because it's not their business i completely get that, but have some sort of control or participation in that. And then you might have the right services that you want in those buildings. And you, frankly, you might get credit for a lot of those services and people might actually say, I want to go into this building because they provide all of these services for us, as opposed to about to go into another building where I got to, I got to figure out everything all over again. 
talk about the pain of doing that. Yeah, it's a big pain. And I think if you're a landlord right now, you have to be looking at space as a service and figuring out how to get that into your building in some capacity. It doesn't mean necessarily that you have a 40,000 square foot co-working space uh, or you're competing with OEWork, but it does mean you have to be looking at what services your customers need and get those services in there and figure out how to model them to make sense. Right. We're working with a lot of portfolio owners right now, helping them figure out what the right approach there is and then which of our brands makes sense to put in there. And in some cases, we're operating white labels for them. I want to ask you a question. This might be slightly controversial. Okay. But the way we're going coming out of this pandemic with the new ways of working, we've been working remotely for the last couple of years now. Mm-hmm. And now we're coming back into the office. And I think in general, most people agree that it's going to be sort of a hybrid approach, vary per company, per culture, per person, maybe. Mm-hmm. But then we have some people in commercial real estate who have some self-interest, I'm going to say. Okay. <laughs> and... um. They, I'll just say, I'm just going to, I'm going to name drop here. Michael Emery here with Allied in Toronto. Yes. He made headlines twice now. Yep. First, he told the banks that they need to find a backbone and and get their people back into the office. Yes, I saw that. The next thing he says is that he believes that people who want to work flexibly are the minimally engaged employees. So I guess I obviously disagree. And maybe there are some minimally engaged employees out there that work remotely. I'd say there's probably some that were in the office as well. But number one, words matter. And if there's a vested interest in getting people back to the office, I get that. It's a pandemic. There's a lot of disruption going on. Mm-hmm. But how can we in commercial real estate sell the office and sell the benefits of the office without sounding, you know, without being self-interested? And I know you're pro-office, but I think. Yes, I am. I am pro-office. But what's your view on his approach there? Well, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt in that I don't know the full context of the conversation that he provided, but based on the headlines that I read, I think both comments were unfortunate. The first comment uh, going after the the bank CEOs, I thought that was most unfortunate. I, I do know a number of them very, very well, and I do know exactly what they were going through. And it was extremely thoughtful on how they were thinking about it. And I'll come back to that approach. The second comment, again, I don't know the full context. I think I know what he was trying to get at, but I think it was very poorly either interpreted or communicated. So let me give you my view. I do believe in human interaction, but where we tend to get, I think, a little arrogant, I could speak for myself, is when we talk about this issue, first of all, we're talking about white collar workers and professional workers. Well, we sort of just forget about the 60 odd percent of folks who have no choice, who must show up in a physical location. So that's number one. So now we're in a, again, my percentages will be wrong, but we're now in the minority subset of the issue that we're now uh, talking about. And I think that, again, ignore the pandemic. Companies really didn't spend adequate time really understanding the needs of their employees. And I would remove the individual needs because there are folks who prefer not to be supervised and perhaps there's folks in there that like not to be supervised because they're not fully engaged. And does that happen? Absolutely it does. Is that endemic? I don't believe so. I think it's a very, very small number. Let me give you an example because this is a a real example and I'll use the 
the banks as a great testament. When you stratify your workforce inside of a bank, there are folks that really need to be there on a daily basis. So think of the folks in a bank branch as an example. That's a frontline worker. And I don't think that there is much choice on there unless you want to be replaced by an ATM machine or, or, or what have you. And then let's go to the other extreme. You know, the banks have significant investments in call center employees. And the typical day of a typical call center employees, they get to work. Yes, they have colleagues around there, but almost their entire day, they're speaking to a screen. And even when they speak to the folks who they're working for, they're actually not even physically present in the same office. And it begs the question, why the heck are they commuting from their home to sit in an office that's typically in a suburban location because of the low rent cost? And yet they could do everything at home. And the issue is a number, and I know at least two of the CEOs were led to believe that a transformation for them to work out of the home would have taken three years from a technological perspective because of the security issues, et cetera. It took them three weeks. Okay. So they were shocked and they love it because it is a cash-free benefit for these employees who are thrilled out of their mind that they're work, you know, they're avoiding the, the commuting time for employees that didn't need to be reporting the office. Then you, you know, you go to your IT folks and maybe you say, why are they in there five days a week? But, you know, but you want them to do some collaboration. So you start to go, hey, but for you folks, three days a week, and you guys pick the three days that you want to go. And so I just gave three examples and the result is different for each of those three. And so I think the decision should be based upon functionality of the group on which you belong or the role that you're playing in an organization, not solely on your individual preference because you prefer to be on the edge of your dock in a cottage location and you might be productive, but is the team more or less productive whether you're together or not? In my firm, we have made the decision and it's a unanimous decision, at least based on what you know, our, our discussions with our employees. Our collaboration is so high that the technology that we're using, and we're very tech savvy, still doesn't make it impossible, but we haven't learned how to be as efficient using technology as we would have with those small conversations in the office. And that's really just because of our adoption. And I still think I love physically seeing people. That's who I am. And frankly, we're humans. I love having the beer after work. I love having the coffee. Why? Because I actually find out smaller details of individuals than I would have when I even book technological interactions. So you know what I do right now? Every employee I do one a week, they come to my house and we have coffee or cocktails, depending on the timing. And I'm still doing that human interaction on a one-to-one -one basis. And I just can't wait to when we're all fully in the office where that's just done on a more effective basis. But that just that's the way that we operate. That's not a universal truth to all of the companies. Well, that's certainly a different spin on work from home. Very, very interesting. And I think you're right that it, it is going to vary based on everybody's culture. But I guess, um, you know, what we, we are seeing is that this hybrid is happening. And, you know, no matter how companies address that, um, this is going to have a fundamental impact on commercial real estate going forward. Yes. Oh, and by the way, I should have added, when I said 
work from home versus working from the office, our choice is going to be a hybrid approach. But here's the reality. I've been operating on a hybrid approach since around 1998 or 1999. Nothing has changed. And it was called BlackBerry. If you're in Canada, <laughs> BlackBerry was the first time that I was personally untethered from my desk. So the hybrid work arrangement is a shrug in our office. And it's a shrug for a lot of folks where they were showing up when they needed to in the office. My previous employer before, you know, when I was at Omer's and before that, when I was at Deloitte and before that, I was at Arthur Anderson. That was the way that we had operated. So again, it's just using the logic. I think the days where people are judged, but based on the t physical time yeah. in the office, that is utter nonsense. And I think that is gone forever. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think I've been working flexibly for over the past decade myself. I think the biggest inflection point that I see is that this pandemic has opened that up to so many more people. We've all had to do it. And now that we have, many of us don't want to go back to the old way. And so if the future is hybrid, this to me is going to have a major impact on commercial real estate. I'm curious, Absolutely. Yes. How, how do you think it's going to have an impact? What, what would you advise someone in the landlord community right now? Not to build any more buildings for a while, because I think there's going to be excess inventory that's going to be needing to be absorbed. I don't have a crystal ball, but I'd say for the next five years, there's going to be a lot of shakeout. And I do believe the hybrid approach is the right approach. Is that going to mean a 50% decrease in occupancy rates? I don't think so. At the start of the pandemic, I'm going to hold on to my estimates. I kept on always saying it's going to be about a 20, 10 to 20% decrease in office needs. That's why it's going to be five-ish years of time to absorb it. But it's not going to be the office is gone. Like that, Those were all the stories and I just was rolling my eyes. And it's not going to be everything is going to go right back to normal. Like I said, it's that hybrid approach I think is going to be where most folks kind of settle in on. But giving, again, consideration, those that have to be there and those that do not have to be there, those are the easy ones to deal with. Hybrid is very complex. So let's just say it is three days. Well, which three days? Does, if, if everyone's coming in on the same three days, is there actually a decrease in real estate, right? There's a lot of questions, and I think we're still at the very beginning of understanding that. Yeah, 100%. John, we're going to move into the quick fire round now. All right. All right. Quick questions, quick answers. Who inspires you in commercial real estate and the whole future of work conversation? Well, to be honest, no one does. Because <laughs> um, I just think it's just got a long way to go. I think that there's some great service providers that are thinking through this very, very well. But there is no one that I could think of in the world that's really changing the game the way the game need, needs to be changed. So I would say I am still looking for that. Oh, there you go. We need some more bolder companies out I there. I think that's right. Okay. Well, the next question is what podcast or media do you consume to stay up to date on the latest industry trends to challenge your thinking? Well, I do listen to 10X podcasts a lot, but I actually go in the non-business space for me for inspiration. So the person who I listen to a lot is someone or Canadian audiences would know well. His name is David 
Suzuki, um, the leading environmentalist who's been telling us for, I don't know now, 60 years where the world was going. I'm the vice chair of of the David Suzuki Foundation. And why that's important to me is that in all of these industries and and real estate is a very, very big one through his teachings to me of sustainability and where the world is going. He got me thinking about community and decreasing our, our footprints and actually looking at densification at cities and smart cities. So from a broader real estate perspective, it really got me thinking about this whole space is, you know, 10 years ago before all of these interesting issues are now in front of us. But 10 years ago, absolutely no one was talking about this. And I was quite surprised that no one really was. Well, that's a great shout. Sustainability and the green agenda has become high level at the surface of commercial real estate right now. And I think there's obviously there's lots of green bonds and different vehicles out there. There'll be a lot of investment in sustainable buildings and net zero buildings over the next five to 10 years, I think. Yes. Okay. My last question is very light. It's not work related. Where's your favorite place to vacation? Italy is, uh, so. That's where you get the red wine from. That's where you get the red wine from. And, uh, my daughter was named after my favorite Italian wine. Actually, my, my, my daughter's first name is my favorite city in the world. So her name is Rome. So that's the place that I feel like it's a second home to me. I haven't been there since the uh, pandemic and I can't wait to, to get back there. I've got like two cheesy dad jokes off that. Okay. So one, you feel home at Rome. In yes. Rome. Yes. And number two, your daughter wasn't built in a day. Oh, yeah. I'm going to, I'll let her know that one. Let, <laughs> let her figure out on that one. <laughs> Great. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience, your wisdom, your insights. It means a lot. And I'm looking forward to continuing our conversations offline. Great. Thank you very much, Caleb. Oh, one more question. Where can people find you? You want to connect with your LinkedIn? Yes, LinkedIn is probably the best, uh, the best place. Uh, so uh, I'm there, and uh, I am a uh, LinkedIn power user. So uh, <laughs> lots of people will shout at me and disagree with me, but I love discourse, uh, and it's I like professional discourse. Yes, please. You know, as opposed to some of the unprofessional hiding behind uh, quasi names. Uh, I don't like that very we'll, much. We'll leave that on Facebook. <laughs> but we'll put John's link to his profile in the show notes below. Thank you for tuning in today. And uh, until next time, take care of yourself. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Drum roll, please. P.S. If you want to find out about future-proofing your portfolio, head over to newflex.com. This episode of the WorkBolt podcast was produced by the producer Jason Allen Scott. It was edited, content created, mastered, SEO, meta tagged, and many other technical things by Jeff Allen Streck. Social media assets and all content for this show, including blogs and transcripts and audiograms, were created by Sophia Giblin from Your Content Factory. This show is made by a podcast company. If you'd like to find out more about our services, please email jason at jsjvs.com. That's jason at jsjvs.com. We hope you enjoyed the show.